Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you, Adam. Now, would you turn back with me, please, to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Before the ministry of the word this morning, I want to simply read to you verse 5. summarizes the relevance of the whole text in verse 5. Tells us what relevance the story of Jesus has for us. He says in verse 5, Have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Then verse 6 says, Who? And so, expands upon what he's talking about. How Jesus life, the story of Jesus, is relevant for us. It leaves us a legacy. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Thank you, dear Father, for the story of Jesus. Thank you for this great blessing that you have given to us. A wonderful story. A powerful story. A true story. A story loved by your people. A story loved by you. And we pray that as we consider this wonderful, true and powerful story, that you would send us the Holy Spirit that he would write it on our hearts and that he would glorify your name that your blessing would come to your people salvation to sinners and glory to Jesus we ask these things in his name amen the apostle paul said that we do not preach ourselves He said, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves. What do we have to say about ourselves? We are your servants for Jesus' sake. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. As you know, I've been asking for prayer and wrestling with regard to where to go, with regard to the ministry of the Word of God. And it seemed good to me over the next five weeks or so to expound this passage in Philippians and to present to you the story of Jesus as the Apostle Paul presents it here. Today, my intention is to give you a summary of that story. The story really begins, if you look at the text, it begins in verse 6. Why do I say it begins in verse 6? You have verses 1 to 5. Well, in verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about the practical application of the life and story of Jesus 
to us as his people. That's why we see in verse 5, have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. The story begins in verse 6. The beginning of the story is the deity and equality of God the Son. The deity of God the Son and his equality with God the Father. Verse 6 says, who? Christ Jesus, existing, subsisting in God's form, did not regard being equal with God as robbery, King James says. It's translated in different ways, in different versions. I'll say more about that, get into that in detail, in uh, it, God willing, next week. But for now, I want you to observe that the story begins before the foundation of the world. Before Jesus Christ, the person, came here, he already lived. His life didn't begin when he became human. His life had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When he always lived, he lived in the form of God the Father. And I'll open up more of what that means, God willing, next week. He was from all eternity and upon creation subsisting, living person, living in God the Father's form. And for that reason, he did not consider equality with God as stolen property. He did not consider equality with the Father as the rightful possession of another. He considered it to be his own rightful possession because he is the supreme being subsisting in the Father's form. And because he's subsisting in the Father's form, he regards equality with the Father, not as robbery, not as stolen property, but as his own rightful possession. That's where the story begins. Begins without beginning. Begins when only God was. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one supreme being. Begins with the mystery of the supreme being, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one supreme being who always was. Jesus Christ is the supreme being. He is God the Son. He always was. And before he came to earth, he was subsisting in the Father's form. He was with the Father. He was equal with the Father. And regarded that equality as his own rightful possession. And so the beginning of the story.
deity and equality. Verse 6. But then, if you notice with me, the next part of the story, verse 7, but nevertheless, although he was living in the Father's form and regarded equality with the Father as his rightful possession, because it was, he emptied himself. Second part of the story, the second chapter of the story, the second scene of the story is not not a not a chapter or a scene of deity and equality, but Paul describes it in Second Corinthians chapter eight as poverty. Though he was rich, deity, equality with the Father, his rightful possession, he became poor. He emptied himself that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. So I described the second scene as a scene of poverty. Though he was rich, he became a poor. He emptied himself. He didn't empty himself by subtracting. He emptied himself by adding. He emptied himself, taking to himself, without ceasing to be what he ever was, he became what he never was. He added, he took the form of a servant, and he became in the likeness of men. He took to himself a true humanity. Though he was not a mere man, he became in the likeness of men with a true humanity and a servant's form. I refer to that as poverty because Paul does. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that we through his poverty might be made rich. Now I'm not going to address all the details of that poverty today. But God willing. Two weeks from now. I'll focus on the second scene. The second chapter of the story of Jesus. So the first chapter. Deity. Equality with the Father. The second chapter. Poverty. Taking, in addition, a servant's form and the likeness of men. The God-man took to himself a true humanity and became the God-man. It's a tremendous mystery, isn't it? It's got tremendous implications. We considered some of them when we looked at the incarnation and the mystery of the incarnation at Christmas time. But I want to go back to it and look at it from the viewpoint of this text. That he took a servant's form and was made in the likeness of men. And then there's a third chapter to the story and that's set forth in verse 8. Chapter 3. So chapter 1, deity, equality with the Father. Chapter 2, poverty, poverty. 
taking a servant's form, becoming in men's likeness. Chapter 3. How would you describe this chapter? Let me read it. And being found in fashion, and that word refers to outward appearance. And being found in outward appearance, fashion, as a man, which means when he was here, the God-man looked like his outward appearance was the outward appearance of an ordinary man. Didn't have a halo or anything like that. Wouldn't have all this light shining from him. He looked, just looked like an ordinary man, just like any one of us. He was found in fashion as a man. What did he do? He humbled himself. How did he do that? Becoming obedient. The one who gave the law obeyed the law. Obedient how long? His entire life unto death. What kind of death? The death of the cross. So this next chapter, first chapter one, deity, equality with the Father. Chapter two, poverty, taking a servant's form, becoming in men's likeness. Chapter three, humility. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Humility. And how did he display that humility? Displayed that humility by obedience. Became obedient. He was obedient to God in his absolutely perfect sinless life. He was obedient to God in that special commandment given to him about the tree. He was obedient in his death. What the theologians call his passive. Obedience, not that it was passive in the sense that he wasn't involved in it, but it was passive in the sense that it involved suffering or passion. He became obedient unto death. And what kind of death? An atoning death. A death in which he was willing to endure the wrath of God that is due justly to all of the sins of all of his people who believe in him through all time. From Abel to the last person who believes in Christ before the second coming. The entire, entire society of the redeemed. All of their sins. Everything justice demanded. All of it. He took it all. He took all the liability and all the guilt for all that sin upon himself and he became obedient. Even though in his human nature, his soul, as he describes it, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this come pass from me. I mean, he... He wasn't a masochist. He didn't want to go to hell. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He was willing to do it because he was obedient to the Father. Even when it came to enduring the wrath of God, he learned obedience. The writer to Hebrews says, through the things that he suffered. He was willing to do it. He wasn't a masochist. He didn't want to have pain inflicted on him. 
or some kind of sick pleasure. That's not who he was. But he was willing to endure it because he loved sinners like us so much. That he was willing to take the punishment that we deserve so that we wouldn't suffer. Because there was no other way for us to be saved. And that's what he came here to do. He became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. That's it. Humility. Self-giving love that's willing to suffer so that others would be blessed because God commanded it. That was his obedience. That was his humility. I'm just setting it out before you today. God willing, we'll look at that humility in greater detail in a couple of weeks. Next week, I want to focus on his deity. The week after that, on his poverty. The week after that, on his humility. And then look the end of the story. Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. Verse 9. Verse 9, look at verse 9. Wherefore, after the humiliation of Christ comes the exaltation of Christ. Wherefore, for this reason, therefore, God highly exalted him. He raised him from the dead. Then he ascended up into heaven. Then he seated at the right hand of God in glory, reigning. Raised, ascended, seated. God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. All authority, he said, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he said, go and bring the gospel everywhere on earth. I paraphrase that, but make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them, etc. So he sends his church in every generation to bring the gospel everywhere on earth because God has highly exalted him. Raised him from the dead. And through him God will judge the world. Because the end result of his exaltation is that in the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow. And verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person will bow. Every person will be judged by Jesus Christ. And God has given assurance to the whole world of this because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in glory. And he will judge the world in righteousness through him. And when he does, will be gathered before him everyone, the righteous and the wicked, and every knee will bow to him. You will bow to him. Whether you like it or not, you will be there. You will be judged. 
You'll either be with the sheep to whom he says, Come, you're blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Or you'll be with the goats to whom he says, Depart from me, you cursed, to the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You'll be with one group. that You'll be there. And you'll bow. The only question is which group you're going to be with. It's not a question of whether you'll be there. It's not a question of whether you'll bow. It's not a question of whether you'll acknowledge who he is. Because you will. You'll, you'll, if you're wicked, you'll still hate him. And you'll still hate the gospel. And you'll still hate the truth. And you'll hate God even for all eternity while you're enduring the wrath of God. You'll continue to hate God and continue to refuse to serve God. But you won't overthrow God. You will acknowledge him. You will bow to him. And these then shall go away to everlasting punishment. There will be no successful revolt against God's authority and rule. God has highly exalted Jesus Christ. And no group of wicked men will ever dethrone him. I mean wicked human beings, men and women. Nobody will ever dethrone him. Nobody will ever overthrow him. You won't be able to do it. You will bow. So, I mean, why would you want to fight somebody when you can't win? Do you hate him that much? Really? You really hate him that much? Why? Why do you hate him that much? But he explained why the world hates him. He told his brothers before he went up to the feast. He said, you know, the world can't hate you. Me it hates. Because I testify of it. That its deeds are evil. The wicked don't believe in freedom of speech. They don't want to hear Jesus telling them that they're evil and deserve to go to hell. They don't want to hear him telling them, you generation of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. They don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Do sinners want to hear that they're hell deserving, that they deserve the wrath of God, that they deserve to be punished for all eternity in the lake of fire with the devil and his demons? People don't want to hear this. They don't like it. It's not popular. Never has been popular. Never will be popular. It's why the world hates Jesus. But I entreat you. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You don't have to stay living like that. I mean, we were all once like that. We're no better. We deserve to go to hell as much as anybody ever did. And I entreat you, while there's still time, humble yourself. Get right with God. Don't continue rebelling against Him. Because you can't win. You won't win. You won't win. You can't win. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and God will receive glory even regarding the goats because his justice will be displayed in their eternal punishment. So God willing, after we consider his deity and his poverty, next week, deity, Week after that, poverty. Week after that, humility. Week after that, glory. Deity, poverty, humility, glory.
That's the story. Isn't that amazing? Amazing story. Wonderful story. I love to tell the story. Because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings. There's nothing else can do. And there's one other aspect of the story that's presented in the text. At least one. And observe verse 5 again. Because verse 5 talks about the legacy of this story, the practical relevance and application of it. And you know this story. It's a story of deity, poverty, humility, and glory to follow the poverty and humility. Deity, poverty, humility, glory. So what? So have this mind in you. Here's the legacy that Christ leaves. Have this mind in you that also was in Christ Jesus. Have the same mind in you, the same attitude in you. An attitude of love, an attitude of grace, an attitude of mercy, an attitude of humility. The same mentality, the same mindset, an attitude of being willing to obey God no matter what that obedience costs you. Gospel obedience, genuine humility, self-giving love. And look how this is expressed in verses 1 to 4. And we'll open this up. And this, I'm not sure whether I do this in one week or two weeks. I will have to see when we get there. But he says, look, if if there's any consolation, if there's any fellowship, if there's any tender mercies and compassions, this is the mind we're supposed to have. A mind, a mindset, and a behavior that produces joy in spiritual leaders and in all God's people. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Have this mind in you which was in Christ. Being of one accord, of one mind. Not filled with arrogance and self-promotion. Doing nothing through faction, through vainglory. But with humility like Jesus was in lowliness of mind each regarding the other better than himself. Not filled with selfishness, but with sensitivity that grows out of really, truly loving people and being concerned about them and their well-being. Not looking each of you at your own things, meaning your own things, only your own things. Someone so selfish and preoccupied that they only consider themselves and how, how it, this affects them. Not looking only at your own things, but each of you also. Not only your own things, but the things of others. Imagine if Jesus was so self-centered and self-occupied that he didn't care about anybody or anything but himself. We know he wouldn't have a gospel. He wouldn't have a savior. He would never have experienced poverty. And he certainly wouldn't have displayed humility. Have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. This is the legacy. The legacy of someone who is himself deity, willing to experience poverty and display humility on the way to glory, leaving us that legacy so that we would be like him. Well, I want to look, after we're done considering deity and poverty, and humility, and the glory to follow, then I want to stop and take a look at the legacy. 
of the story of Jesus. So that's where I want to go. Okay? You ready for that? Look at the story of Jesus with me. So the next five weeks, the scripture reading, I'm planning to read the same text over and over again. What do you think of that? Hopefully we will, we'll see. But we hopefully will be able to embed it in our minds. So what do I want to say then finally today? I wanted to give you a summary of the story and where we're going. Deity, poverty, humility, glory, and the practical application of it, the legacy of the story. So, first of all, I say this because I want you to know the story of Jesus. Know the story. But we ought to know the story. We ought to know it well. Why should we know the story and know it well? Because that story is the very heart of our religion. Our religion is fundamentally not about just a set of morals or a moral code or moral standards that we live by. Our, yes, our religion has moral codes, but so do other religions. Our religion is not simply about adhering to moral codes and doing this and not doing that and living an ethical, conscientious life. It's not just about that. In fact, it's not fundamentally about that. Fundamentally, our religion, Christianity, is not about a code of ethics. It's about a person. And it's about a relationship with this person, Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, it's about knowing his story and having a personal relationship with him. It's about knowing him and about loving him and fellowshipping with him and with God through him. And because we know him and love him and fellowship with him and by the Holy Spirit fellowship with God through him, Therefore, we have ethical standards and we live a life. And the very essence of what we want to live is that we want to be like him. Have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. So know the story. That it begins with deity and equality with the Father and it moves through poverty. That he takes a servant form and becomes in the likeness of men and that he displays humility by his obedience unto death. And that it ends in glory. The glory of his resurrection and ascension and session. And ultimately the glory of his second coming to judge the world. And the glory of his eternal life. In new heavens and earth with his people. Forever and ever. So first of all. I go through this. So that we will better know the story of Jesus. But secondly, I wanted to sing that hymn this morning because my desire is that through considering afresh the story of Jesus, we would have greater love for the story of Jesus and greater love for Jesus. That's why that hymn number 387, why does she love to tell the story? First of all, she loves to tell the story because it is a true story. She says, I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It's a true story. It actually really 
happened in history, space, and time. There really is a God. And that God really is three persons. And one of those persons, God the Son, really truly in history, became what he never was, human, without ceasing to be what he always was, the supreme being. He came and experienced the poverty of incarnation. And then he actually, truly, really lived in his humility an absolutely sinless, perfect life of obedience to God. And he really, truly, truly died on the cross an atoning death, satisfying justice, pacifying wrath for all the sins of all who believe in him. That really happened. He really lived a perfect life, which is all the virtue we need. And he really died an atoning death, which is all the atonement we, we, we need. It is a true story. And God really raised him from the dead in history. Not in make-believe. But in history. Raised him from the dead. And really in history, he ascended up into heaven. And sat on God's right hand. And he's still there. The God-man body and soul reunited, raised from the dead, one person who is both the supreme being and human at the same time is really in heaven right now. It's a true story. It's not make-believe. It's not fiction. It's truth. It's history. True story. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. Because I know it's true. True story. And it's also... It's an encouraging story. What did she say? It satisfies my longings like nothing else can do. It encourages me to think that such a thing really happened in history. That God the Son really became human. Poverty. Really, it displayed humility in his obedience. Was really raised from the dead and exalted and has really provided all that we need to be right with God. It really happened. What encouraging, what an encouraging story. It's a story that gives us hope. Hope of deliverance. It shows us God's grace. What an encouraging story. It shows us God's mercy. It shows us God's heart. It shows us that he's a God full of love and compassion and mercy and grace to people who are his enemies, people in the state of sin. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. He didn't come to destroy the world. He came that through him the world might be saved. God sent his son into the world so that whosoever believes in him would not perish, that is, would not go to hell, but have everlasting life. Isn't it an encouraging story? story of hope. And it's a remarkable story. More wonderful it seems. I always, I don't sing it too loud, but I always change the words to that line when I sing it. The, the, what she wrote is, more wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I don't know about golden fancies of golden dreams, but I know that I used to have dreams when I was young. And I remember that. So I always sing instead of golden dreams, I always sing all of my old dreams. 
the dreams I used to have as a boy. And I'll tell you, this story is much more wonderful than any of those old dreams that I used to have. How naive and foolish and ignorant those old dreams of mine were. And this is more wonderful because it gives a genuine hope. And furthermore, this story is a powerful story. It is a life-changing story. She says, it did so much for me. It did so much for me. This story, she says, changed my life. And to that I say, amen. Changed my life too. Jesus changed my life. Changed everything about my life. And you believe in him and you come to know him, he'll change everything about your life too. Story's powerful. Life-changing story. Now some stories, when you read them, they have a powerful effect upon people. They move you one way or the other. But this story has power like no other story you ever heard. This story changed you from the inside out. Changed you radically. Changed everything about your heart. Change everything about your values, everything about your soul. Change you radically, change you permanently, and change you for the better. It's a life-changing story. She's right. Did so much for me, she says. <laughs> and it is a delightful story. I love to tell the story. She says, "Tis pleasant to repeat. Yes, it is. What seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. That's true. I never, ever get tired of preaching Jesus. I love telling this story. It's an incredible story. I do not think that word means what I think it means. It's incredible, but I do believe it. Because it's not only true, it's wonderful. It's sweet, it's delightful. I have joy in my heart for the privilege of standing up and telling you about this person. Who is the supreme being who came to experience poverty and while he was here, humility. And God has given him glory. And that story, he's changed the world like no other human has a legacy for all of us. I love telling you that story. I tell you that all the time. What a privilege it is. What seems each time I tell it. And it is a very practical, relevant story. She says, I love to tell the story because some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. It, it has relevance for everybody. Everybody needs to hear this story from the story of Jesus, there are what? Seven billion people in the world? Like no other story, this story is relevant for all, all of those seven billion people. Every single one of them. Some of them have never heard it. 
and yet it's relevant for them. It gives every single person on earth a hope of deliverance from sin and from the wrath of God. That some people have never heard. And finally, it's a precious story. I found this to have been true over the years. She says, I love to tell the story. Why is it precious? Because those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Don't you think, do you not know that, or find that that's true? You know the story, right? Does that mean, oh, I'm sick of hearing about Jesus? Is that how you feel? It's not, right? You maybe know the story better than I do, and yet you still love to hear it. Isn't it true? Isn't that true? It's a precious story. It's a precious story. It's precious to those who believe in the Lord Jesus. So, know the story. Love the story. Why love it? Because it's true and satisfying and remarkable and powerful and life-changing, delightful, practical, relevant to the whole human race and precious to those who know the Lord. And finally, dear people, and this is my hope, that as we consider this story in detail, and next week we look at the deity, and then the week after that the poverty, and then the week after that the humility, and the week after that the glory, and the week after that the legacy, and maybe two weeks the legacy, or three weeks the legacy, I don't know. But as we look at that, that we would tell the story because everybody needs to hear the story of Jesus. And because God loves to hear the story of Jesus. And because the story of Jesus will endure forever. She says, "Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Well, may God be pleased to bless us as we look again at this precious, wonderful, true, powerful story of Jesus. And that God would use this to help us better to know it, to love it, and to tell it. For his honor and glory, for our good and the good of our fellow men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Jesus. And we pray that the blessedness of his deity and poverty and humility and glory would dawn and shine upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would write it on our heart and that we would be like him and more and more we would have our own hearts made like his. We would have the mind that he had we would reflect his love and his humility in our lives more and more. And that you would use us as a means of grace to save sinners. That you would bless your people and if any hear the story this morning and they're not saved, Father, please, I entreat you, like you had mercy on us, also have mercy on them. We ask it 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now before you go, I want to bring a word of blessing or benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That concludes our service. Thank you all for coming. You are dismissed.